This podcast was recorded in a Zoom meeting with the Hartford Street Zen Center Sangha. Please visit hszc.org for information about how to join our online programs or to make a contribution. We depend on the generosity of our members and supporters, especially during this challenging time. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I uh, very much appreciate being here with all of you. Can people hear me okay? I do have a, uh, thank you, I do have headphones that cut out a little bit of background noise, but they also make me sound like I'm in a can, I'm told. So I try to avoid those kinds of small spaces. Um, so I just want to start by saying, uh, I'm just going to talk today about uh, everyday life, about just uh, the ordinary moment-to-moment -moment living of everyday life in our practice. And, um, you know, inquiring about that kind of recently took me to Dogen's uh, fascicle in the Shobogenzo Birth and Death. And I've, I've read it many times over the years, but I've never really, I don't feel like I've ever really um, received it the way I was able to receive it recently. So I thought I might share some of my um, ideas about it uh, with you. And then uh, I hope to talk about it. Um, but Buddhism holds that uh, birth and death, um, uh, birth, Buddhism holds death as a distinct activity of life. <clears throat> so it's not an end. I mean, it is an end, but it's not an end as we understand it. Birth, breath, death, birth, breath, death. At funerals, the fire, the fire mudra, birth, breath, death. Uh, distinct activities. We could think of them as a continuity that we experience. Um, in actually each and every moment. Uh, so that literally uh, we take, we become sensate, we are sensate in bodily form. And um, we have, at, at, you know, at the point of our birth, we think, right, in this linear idea. And then we live or abide and we perish um, or uh, die. And it is the, the physical sensate uh, form aspect uh, that has those experiences. And within those, um, and, and so in Buddhism, we, we describe this physical sensate being and its interactions with its experience as um, or I would even say further, it's um, uh, it's uh, interrelationship with its experience. We describe as um, form, sensation, perception, memory, and consciousness. The five skandhas. So these skandhas are interrelationships with our experience. They, in, they relate to our experience. They condition what we experience over our lifetime. 
And we pretty much over human life are wired to come to see them as uh, me. So these interrelationships between my sensate being, my, this form self, and its experience, um, I attach to, actually I believe neurologically, and I think the Buddha knew that, and I think he described that brilliantly. Uh, we're wired to attach. It is not bad to attach. The Buddha never said it was bad. He said it causes suffering. <laughs> Different issue. And then Suzuki Roshi came along to say, you should enjoy your suffering. So there you go. There, you know, Buddhism in a nutshell. Uh, but these interrelationships are so key because they form this one that I would call Beata. And so I incite ear and sound. We chant this in the Heart Sutra every day in the temple. Nose and smell, tongue and taste, body and touch, mind and mind consciousness. They dance together to create this experience that I call me, or you might call Beata. And so I believe that, that this begins pre-birth. I don't know how far back I want to go because I have other conflicts with that idea that I haven't quite worked out. <laughs> but I believe certainly once the fetus begins to form in the womb, those ex form form in the womb to some extent, a heart, lungs, the brainstem, it begins to be sensate. And therefore these, its experiences as a sensate being begin to, uh, begin to describe it in, in certain ways. What is positive, negative, and neutral to the body uh, gets interpreted, gets, uh, gets recorded and therefore becomes part of the whole experience. And then I think pre-verbally after birth, I think birth and pre-verbally after birth, and then for the rest of our lives, we work with this. This is, this is ordinary life, everyday ordinary life, eye and sight, ear and sound, uh, um, you know, skin and touch and so forth. So, and they continue to condition us so be, so becoming more and more uh, familiar and intimate with these five skandhas is a profound practice. And uh, it is uh, in some ways very much what we're doing in Zazen. So we learn about ourselves right from the start. We learn who we are. We learn to who this one Beata is. And then uh, I believe we sort of get confused. I think this is kind of central to the teaching and we start to identify, I start to identify, for example, with Beata as a solid being. Because look at all these things about Beata that I can tell you and, you know, we can talk about and right. And I, I think those things are Beata. So that's what I bring to the world. I describe myself that way. What I do, you ask me where I lived. Oh, very solid. Right. This is, this is it. And here's where I work. I added that. I noticed that I added that. <laughs> so I find it uh, 
amazing to just understand these interrelationships that we are, our bodies, even in our sleep, are engaged with because we are sensate in our sleep. We are sensate in a coma. Um, certain of these skandhas remain. Um, so, you know, we begin to condition to the smell of mother within two hours of birth. Within two hours of birth, we prefer mother, the smell of mother to any other smell that's presented. Very powerful, hardwired, because what does mother have right then? Food, <laughs> survival, warmth, shelter, protection. We rely on, on, on her, whoever she may be, or he may be, this being we can call mother. So, you know, I feel, and I'll just, I want to give this example because it's powerful, but not to scare you, uh, just to say it's personal so I can uh, share it and then, you know, kind of put some Dharma in, in light of it or bring it to the Dharma maybe. So I learned about myself uh, in the betrayal of those who should have cared for me. That's something I've only recently come to understand and I am 62. So, and, and by the way, I have not turned away from knowing this. I've been, I've been working with this for, you know, 40 years. So um, with my, this one here, this conditioned uh, set of interrelationships with uh, these skandhas. And uh, I believe that very, very early um, betrayal and the failure of those who I counted on with whom I was hardwired. Um, uh, you know, I learned through those eyes or in those eyes, you could say, um, someone that is this one here, not worth responding to and um, to hearing or seeing or caring for. So something invisible maybe um, inaudible. I think this is pre-verbal, so I'm trying to put words on what is really inconceivable. But something, someone that, you know, didn't sort of take up space, wasn't, you know, worth a turn of the head or a, a picking up or a comforting. Something that doesn't matter to the world. I believe I concluded that pretty early. This one doesn't matter to the world. And uh, so I decided that this one, Beata, who I know is not myself. She's just one experience in the life of the self. I get that now. But early, I decided that uh, she must have some basic flaw, some flaw so undesirable to the world that it it that 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 this one is abandoned and left, you know, uh, to fend for herself. And I think that the body took in those messages. I don't think they were taken in in the conceptual mind. Therefore, they are inconceivable. We can't conceive how that could be, but that is my body's experience. And I know that because at 62, my body still reacts like that. <laughs> so I still have to look at that. I still have to, it's still part of me. That conditioning early, early about about shelter and safety. So I decided, and I this was a weird one for me, somewhere I decided in there, probably by the time I was about six, 
I made the decision, I will die soon. I will die soon. I will not live very long. I didn't know how long very long was. I certainly never thought it was 62 years. Okay, so I, I mean, I'm way out, you know, like way past anything I ever, so I've given up thinking about this at all. <laughs> but I truly, truly believed that my whole life. So I raced for everything. If I wanted a degree, I had to get it in three years. Could it be done in three years? I wanted it in two years. Why? Because for some reason, I thought if I died, I should have that degree. I mean, I don't, there's no logic in this. It's just, it's just conditioning. It's, it's ancient. It could even be older than my birth. We don't know what is being worked here. Could belong to mom. I mean, or dad, or who knows? This is just what's happening here for me. So, um, and that if I died soon, it wouldn't matter. Like I could just slip out. And, and some of you who have practiced with me, like, it will know that I, I, I did that for years in practice. I would just slip out. I'd be fully involved in something and then get scared and just slip out. And I assumed no one noticed. And again and again, every time I got a comeuppance on that, in Sangha, people noticed. I actually was seen and heard and I'm like, what? I, I just, wait, because I knew, I knew I was invisible, inaudible, et cetera. These beliefs are powerful and they're conditioned without verbal, with no, nothing verbal, you know, or very little, you know, at very young ages when they can't really be thought about. So. Uh, and it, the only thing people would notice is that the world was a better place. So that's what I believed. By the time I think I was about six, I pretty much settled on that. And so, uh, so I decided, I sort of, I feel I decided somewhere in my body that, um, that if confronted and expected to, to, uh, present my own needs, or even just if I have a need, I would collapse and I would not express it because that would be my best effort at safety. And if I, or if I wanted something, I would never express that. That is just not okay. Because why? Because I don't matter. I'm invisible and inaudible anyway. I'm gonna die soon. So what point is it, right? So it's all kind of has this weird, weird, weird logic. Because <laughs> conditioning always does. We always defend it. So I'm laying this bare before you so you can see how even things that old, that old, are, are still alive and well. And they affect how I experience. They affect this interplay, this dance that we all are in with, between this one and her or his or its experience in the world. So I decided uh, also at the same time, and this is my mind, I don't know. I'm betting this is not that unusual, that I would fight like hell. I was going to be a scrapper and I was going to get what I wanted and meet my goals and I was going to scrap and scrape and nobody could, could stop me. So on the one hand, I'm going to collapse and I'm not going to, I'm going to hide. On the other hand, I'm a scrapper and I can get through anything. And, you know, like this incredible, like verve and energy behind having survived as basically, you know, a refugee 
from, from a very young age. So eye and sight, ear and sound, nose and smell, tongue and taste, body and touch, these things uh, um, uh, are not, um, they are not, they are conditioned. They are not, they are not um, mind and mind consciousness. They are all conditioned from the very beginning. Within two hours of birth, we can measure it. And in my case, I have this dramatic story, but its only purpose is to elucidate this point, which is that, man, you know, what, what chance do we have, any of us, to actually experience what we experience with these form selves, this form manifestation in any kind of pure way uh, without the mediation of, the, of all the conditioning that is also present. And I feel like that's what, that's why we do Zazen. Um, so conditioned through these five interrelationships um, or six interrelationships, um, uh, we like and dislike certain conditions and then we seek certain conditions and avoid others. And that seeking and avoiding causes suffering. It's not bad, it just causes suffering. So, <clears throat> and in so doing, we also develop habits. We become habitual in seeking what we like and dislike. And then when we seek only what we like and avoid what we dislike, then truly neurologically, gray matter begins to shed. We, we get less and less variety and the brain sheds gray matter. Literally, this is one of the reasons that as we get older, our memories become fuzzy because memory is stored in gray and white matter in the brain. It's my understanding. I'm not a neurologist, but, you know, uh, uh, I, that's my understanding. So this 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 can be regained when we broaden our uh, our view and take in more of the wholeness of, uh, sorry, a calendar thing showed up here. It's blocking Stefan. So when we really can set aside our preferences and be with, be in the wholeness of our experience, which is another way of saying, uh, learn to tolerate our whole humanity, which includes the good, the bad, and the ugly instead of only wanting to look good or, or be perfect or always be healthy or whatever it is that we're leaning toward to, to, uh, to be with it as it is. And um, actually see, see what it is. And to do that, we have now to climb over a mountain of preference. Uh, and that's my teacher's description. <laughs> so, Dogen um, says, it is a mistake to suppose that birth turns into death. Birth is a phase that is an entire period in itself with its own past and future. For this reason, in Buddha Dharma, birth is understood as beyond birth. Death is a phase that is an entire period unto itself with its own past and future. 
For this reason, death is understood as beyond death. So, birth and death are not one. They also are not two. He goes on, in birth, there is nothing but birth. And in death, there is nothing but death. Accordingly, when birth comes, face and actualize birth. And when death comes, face and actualize death. And so remember, birth, breath, death. Birth abiding death. This is our lives in every moment, every second, every minute, every hour, every day. It That's what, that is the truth of what. And so Dogen says in another part, another uh, part of the show about Genzo, he says, never wander far from birth, breath, and death. That's, that's our lives. That's our most intimate life. And then everything else is sustaining that cycle. Sometimes we call it fanning a course. <laughs> so how do we as people with these conditioned five scon six five skandhas, you know, six senses, um, in interrelationship, uh, filtering and, and maybe not always clear seeing, how do we awaken to our to our Buddha nature? How do we awaken to who we actually are? Uh, uh, um, beyond uh, Beata, or maybe um, it's it's hard. These this is the inconceivable. You know, you can't. You have to say something, but it's you can't. There's no word. So, but you know, I don't want to say bigger than or because you know Beata. I need her to cross the street. And, do other, you know, things, you know, wash the dishes, whatever. I need her. I don't want to put her down, but she, she has limitations. And so who is this one with, without all that overlay? And um, so how do we awaken to that? So here's what Dogen says, same fascicle. He says the birth and death, this birth and death is the life of a Buddha. If you try to exclude it because it causes suffering by its very nature, all of it causes suffering, you will lose the life of a Buddha. If you try to exclude it, you will lose the life of a Buddha. Maybe those parts of yourself, oh, this is awful. The world hates this. I don't like this. I suffer for this again and again and again every time it happens. But I do it again and again and again. Like maybe there's some part of you like that. And you and you keep bringing it because you need to be with people. You're you're wired. <laughs> you're hardwired. So that's vulnerability defined right there, right? So we put ourselves out there and 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 if we exclude those parts of ourselves, we try to hide them. We try to, oh, I'm not that. I'm equanimous all the time. Oh, you know, if we try to do that, that's not the life of the Buddha. The life of a Buddha is, is absent if you try to exclude birth and death. The whole enchilada, in other words, of the human 
experience or the human um, realm. If you cling to it, trying to maintain it, trying to remain in it, you will also lose the life of a Buddha. And what remains will be the mere form of a Buddha. Only when you don't avoid birth and death or long for it, do you enter Buddha's mind. And then in true Dogen form, he goes on. However, do not analyze or speak about it. <laughs> um, just set aside your body and mind. Forget about them and throw them into the house of the Buddha. Then it is all done by Buddha. I have lived with chronic pain, uh, both physical and uh, mental anguish, my, my whole adulthood. And Darlene Cohen, my teacher, once said to me, Beata, you have to throw your body on the Sangha. I'm sure the Sangha will enjoy hearing that. But it, 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 was, it, has, it is such a powerful teaching. You know, forget about you, you and your, what you think are your special needs and you know, what it would take to provide for you to sit this weekend or whatever it is, right? Whatever you're throwing up as you're the barrier, your body won't do what, you know. She said, throw your body on the Sangha, throw them into the house of the Buddha and let it be taken care of by Buddha. So you are not out there. The Ada could rest and the Sangha and the Buddha same <laughs> would would do the caregiving would would meet the refugee so where is buddha that was the title of the talk and for a minute this morning i thought where did i come up with that <laughs> and then i thought you know as a as a practice occasionally i i will go downtown here or up in the city i'll go walking by work i find a lot more people up there and i just um i just silently walk i call it my buddha walk and i silently walk and i just look at every being that my eyes see i make a point of looking at every being that my eyes see if it's grass if it's a rock a pebble a, you know a a person, it does it, any be a tree, any being that comes into my visual field, I walk slowly and I notice, I observe it, and I say, Buddha. That's the whole thing. Simple, simple practice. And I really take in Buddha um, no matter what I'm looking at, and no matter if I think it's ugly or beautiful, no matter if I enjoy it or think, oh my God. Whatever it is, I just say, oh, Buddha. Like in and of itself, without adding anything or, or saying, oh, if it were this, like even this one right here, the one walking, the being that I hardly ever see. <laughs> uh, this one here too. Oh, Buddha. Now that one's harder. That one is still harder. Uh, so, this, this is really what I'm talking about. That, and I think it's what Dogen is talking about. Buddha is no place but right here. Stop looking. Just notice. You don't have to search at all. 
it's it's right there in the in the in the in the in 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 the weirdest things darlene used to say that she loved to come around the corner in the wilderness and see a beer can in a bush she found that totally joyous like or a coke can in a bush i mean she was just like she loved it reflecting the sun and i mean she just felt like she found a little dharma jewel buddha without her usual conditioning, dropping off body and Buddha. Beer can, coat can, middle of the forest, bush, Buddha. Everywhere, never separate. And actually uh, that's written in the Lotus Sutra in the lifespan of the Buddha. Uh, the Buddha is always living and never separate so we say you know how do we become a buddha and we spend life our lifetimes uh, many of us searching for that where is buddha and so dogen talks about that he says Those who want to become free from birth and death should understand the meaning of these words. If you search for a Buddha outside of birth and death, it will be like trying to go to a southern country of Yue, uh, the southern country of Yue, with your spear heading toward the north. <laughs> or like trying to see the Big Dipper while you are facing south you will cause yourself to remain all the more in birth and death and miss the way of emancipation. Just understand that birth and death is itself nirvana. There is nothing such as birth and death to be avoided. There is nothing such as nirvana to be sought. Only when you realize this are you free from birth and death. And he says, there's a simple way to do that. Do you want to know? Because it's right here. I didn't make it up. This is Dogen. I love this part because I would challenge the word simple. And I wonder how you'll feel about it. So let me read it. There's a simple way to become a Buddha. When you refrain from unwholesome actions, are not attached to birth and death, and are compassionate toward all sentient beings, respectful to seniors and kind to juniors, not excluding or desiring anything with no thoughts or worries, you will be called a Buddha. Seek nothing else. Thank you very much. And you know, I just want to say I had uh, meant to start with a, a Malcolm X quote in honor of uh, Black History Month. And, and uh, he said, and I'm just relating this to the part where I talked about my um, early, early learning. He said, uh, the mother is the first teacher of the child. The message she gives to that child, that child gives to the world. Very powerful. 
Thank you. Neil? Um, uh, can we have some uh, questions perhaps or comments? Everyone should be able to, I think, unmute themselves. I, I had a thought. I wondered what you thought about the, you know, early learning and conditioning. I'm starting to, maybe it's pessimistic. I'm starting to have this view that you can only kind of set it down for a little while and then it's just there. And I think even about the Buddha and, you know, somebody, I think one of the documentaries about his life said, the, maybe it was the PBS one um, that I think a lot of people have seen, where they said that maybe, you know, the loss of his mother was what set him on the path even as a you know infant um so i just i wonder yeah i don't know it's, it sounds i mean it sounds like very difficult work and um you know what you you're going through sounds like tough work realizing this about people who you know gave you life or took care of you in your early years or responsible for you but i just you know i find myself just always back to sort of my conditioning again and it's like i feel like i can place it down for a little bit maybe in zaza hopefully <laughs> for a little while but I do not seem to feel like I can ever get away from it, really. Just wonder what you thought about that. Yes, I, I, I think that a conditioning is uh, so powerful that it causes us to forget who we are. I mean, think about how powerful that is. It, it, it literally, by two hours old, we have forgotten. I mean, I can't think of much that's more powerful as a, as a, you know, a, a river, a torrent. Uh, so I, I, I think that's right. And I think it is very, it takes a tremendous um, uh, effort and maybe willingness to, to continually return to one's edges uh, to do this. But you know what? I'm going to get up every morning. I'm going to end up in my bed every night. I'm, I'm, I'm going to age as that happens. <laughs> and I might as well be trying to save all beings by uh, doing my best with what, with this, uh, with this one, this being, this the auto one that, that has life. And, you know, as much as, I mean, what confuses me at this moment is, you know, why is it that one that a that a an organism fights to live while at the same time sort of surrendering to dying what, I mean, how could that coexist until you until you until i began to say life wants to be lived once life is living it wants to live and that is greater than the auto because if it weren't the auto would not be alive there's a way that life is very powerful and so therefore not not feeling like i can make a decision to to end life because it is the inconceivable it is the it is the the uh you know, the raging torrent, it, it is the, it, I, I'm, I'm in it, I'm in the river. 
so not thinking I can come out and take myself out of the river. How do I, how do I, <clears throat> how do I uh, take into the body mind the truth of impermanence, the truth of suffering, and invite Beata to thrive with that understanding because she's the one going away. She's the transient one. She's the one scared to death of, of that. So how do I work with all of that? And I think all we can do is stay in our ordinary, everyday birth, breath, and death moments as close as we can. And, you know, I had an experience at work last week where I uh, said something I shouldn't have said. Sometimes because of my PTSD in highly pressured situations, I say stupid things. I'm just telling you, I say stupid things. Sometimes they hurt people. Sometimes they just offend people. Sometimes they're disrespectful. I own it. I know it. But it's almost involuntary. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, tr I'm working with it. I've been working with it for 40 years, so I don't make guarantees. But I, but like you said, Cato, uh, I, you know, I, I, Beata is, is neurologically developed in this pattern, and it is habit. It is habit. So I'm learning other habits to help me look at that habit. I mean, it's, 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 it's a lifelong effort to make space for Beata to be able to see and just be able to uh, look past or be above or be in but over uh, just preference. Not always being hijacked by that, including the preference to look good, the preference to never offend anyone, the preference to not keep having to mop up my messes after I say something stupid, right? That's all added on to my life as it is, that preference. And sometimes it actually causes me so much self-loathing after I do say something stupid that the stupid thing I said is this big and the self-loathing, you know, makes it this big, right in front of everyone. So it's, it, it's yes, I'm with you. And we're all with you. And what we get from this life is empathy. That's all we get. That's the prize. <laughs> Thank you. That's very, it's helpful and encouraging. And we all know I say stupid things. So, so welcome to the club. I'll uh, issue your membership card today. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> and, I, and I also do the suffering too. Like I say a little thing and yeah, the self-loathing. just With extreme annual fees on that card. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Neil? Um, th thanks very much, uh, Beata. I, uh, uh, I identified uh, with your, your point of view today. Um, I'll be um, 70 pretty soon. And it's uh, only in about the last year that I have uh, come to recognize 
the impact of uh, trauma I experienced as a toddler that, that has lasted my whole life. And it's only dawned on me how significant that is. Um, and um, uh, so um, I also am very grateful for practice which has enabled me to experience this person as process and not as, uh, you know, a damaged entity. So this has been a, a tremendous relief. And um, uh, uh, anyway, I, I, I echoed with your talk today. So thank you very much. Lobiata, I'll say something. Um, I admire how you, the insight you have into yourself and your ability to accept not being perfect. And I think that's has to be a big part of having these type of realizations. If you're stuck in a place of being right or um, perhaps in, in so much pain that you, you can't even look at your own shortcomings or failings, then you're kind of stuck there. Um, so I do admire you being able to, um, you know, look at yourself and not being attached to it. Like, oh my God, I'm wrong. Or, you know, to some people that might be a life and death feeling um, to just accept not, being right about something. So I, I like your demonstrating what you're talking about. <laughs> it gives me hope. Because <laughs> of course I'm speaking of myself as much as probably more than any, any other person. So thank you. My teacher Catherine Thanis years ago at Santa Cruz Zen Center said, she was uh, sitting in, on the floor, about 82 years old, looking like a mountain. Mio knows, Catherine. And she was a mountain, trust me on that. And she uh, looked up, she'd been looking down at some materials, we were in class, and she looked up and she said, there is no Catherine. Isn't that joyous? And, and I, I just, I treasure that teaching, such a simple, just human realization. So while there is great suffering in this effort and in this, in this turning, in not turning away from these, these karmic, this karmic stream we are in uh, with all its uh, stuff, um, there's tremendous joy in that too. In, in seeing, in, in noticing, even when I blow it, they, after, the, after the sinking, <laughs> which I'm hoping will get shorter and shorter because I think it adds to the problem. Uh, uh, you know, I think it, it just opens my heart to others and to others suffering. And maybe that's our 
maybe that's what we can hope for is never to be perfect, but to under, but from not being perfect, from being faulty and frail <laughs> because of our conditioning to understand that that's just a source of empathy for others and compassion. It's a, it's a boundless, bottomless well. Thank you, Ron. Tendo-san, did you have something to add? Um, thank you, Mio. Uh, thank you, Beata, for your talk very much. I liked a lot, what I was hearing was a lot of non-judgment about the arising and the experiences in your body mind in your own life despite the seeming say schizophrenia of both you know wanting to strive and be perfect while at the same time wanting to die and being able to say this makes no sense but i st I, I still accept this you know with compassion and love which is hard very hard and you know, I know you've talked a lot about how you struggle with chronic pain and how to how to have a sense of acceptance and grace and welcoming to the whole body and to be vulnerable with others like you've been with us today. I wanted to say thank you. Thank you. Those are gifts of um, my teachers. And I've had many, many of them, including now all of you. Thank you, Richard. Oh, Beato, thanks very much. Uh, listening to your, your words today, I, I was, there were certain moments, they were like bingo moments, wow. Uh, and I, I can't really describe what they were, but I felt these feelings. I could really resonate with what you were saying. Some words of Eric Burden and the Animals came up in my mind in the song they did many years ago when I was yeah. young. I remember the words, it was like, when I was young, it was more important, paid more pain, but laughed much harder. Wow. Yeah. That came up. At any rate, I thought I just dropped that in there. Great to see you. So all is quiet. Maybe uh, it's an okay stopping time. Thank, thank, thank you everyone for uh, uh, coming together in, in Sangha today.